I'm still laughing about God being the first graffiti artist, so um, I, I actually really like this passage, and I kind of picked it because I already thought it was kind of funny, and now that just, that just adds a whole new dynamic to this passage. Um, but before we jump in, let's just go to God in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the book of Daniel that we've been studying together, and um, I just pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to this lesson today, God. I pray that you would just um, help us to be ready to listen to what you want to say, Lord. Convict our hearts um, with what you want us to do as we leave this place, Lord. Um, I just pray that you would bring us to our knees in worship um, of you as we see what you did in um, this amazing book, Lord, and all of the things that you've done in our lives. Help us just to remember those today and um, to have our hearts open to your word. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so Daniel 5. Um, as we were looking at this passage in leaders meeting this morning, we were talking about how if you just like flip the page in your Bible, it seems like not that much time has gone past, that this is just the next event in Daniel's life. And it would be easy to look and say that, wow, Daniel sure had God work in his life a lot of times, and he obviously was really used by God. But we can forget that there is a big gap in time here. So a lot of his life is spent in just faithfulness, everyday faithfulness to God. And so, you know, as we want to see God working constantly in our lives and have those wow moments, um, we can remember that here Daniel was just living in constant faithfulness to God. And um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king who we read about in chapter 4, has been dead for like 20 23 years at this point, and it's been basically 70 years since Daniel was deported to Babylon, and so he's somewhere in his 80s at this point. Um, and so here in chapter 5, we're introduced to this new king, and honestly, it has been one that's confused people throughout the years because um, for a long time, there wasn't a record of Belshazzar being a king. Until 1853 to 1854, when John George Taylor found himself near Babylon excavating a ziggurat, and it was built in honor of the moon god, and there he found these barrel-shaped cylinders that once um, the cuneiform writing on them was deciphered, we learn how to explain the events that we already had known here in Daniel 5. Um, so these cylinders tell us that Belshazzar was the son of the king Nabonidus, and Nabonidus had given charge of Babylon, if you will, to his son as he went off for basically a decade to a distant place. And so for this decade, Belshazzar was left as the regent, um, in charge of Babylon. So this would explain why he was thought of as the king here in our passage, which I think is really neat because there are times where the history of the Bible is questioned and um, it causes things to come into question, but here we have, many years later, we realize that it was true all along and it makes total sense. And so I just think that's really neat. 
But as Belshazzar comes into our chapter, we're not given a whole lot of introduction to him, which is interesting. He appears just kind of all of a sudden on the scene. We don't get any biographical information, no introduction, no explanation of how he fits in the line of succession. He just kind of appears. And I kind of think the main reason for this is that information is just not necessary for what the narrator is trying to accomplish throughout his book. Because the theme that we have seen in Daniel is that the kingdom of God lasts forever and the kingdoms of this world fall short. And Belshazzar really, really epitomizes this. I mean, this is the perfect story um, in line with our theme of Daniel. And so I don't think that all of that biographical information is necessary for um, the illustration that he plays here. He illustrates a picture of God's sovereignty. And so as you look at this passage with Last week's passage, um, you might see some common themes. So the biggest theme, of course, is pride. Both of these passages deal with pride. But the major difference is the way that they respond. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, as you might remember last week, ends up repentant and restored. He goes through quite a journey to get there. Um, but he does end up repentant and he's restored. And we kind of got this little glimpse of his coming to faith at the end of chapter four. Sadly, Belshazzar will not have the same fate in our chapter. It ends kind of bleak for him, at least. Um, But let's just go right into this uh, verses one through four, this idolatrous feast. So it says, King Belshazzar gave a banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So these first few verses have one verb repeated five times. Did you notice what it is? To drink. (laughs) This is quite a party going on here. Um, There is a lot of drinking going on at this party, and I think the narrator is repeating this to emphasize what's really going on in this um, in this idolatrous feast. And so this is the same night that the Medes and the Persians come in and overthrow Babylon in this final raid. And honestly, it couldn't have been completely unanticipated. You know, maybe it was sudden that they came in and raided Babylon, but honestly, they should have seen it coming. Um, In some ancient documents, Herodotus and Xenophon indicated that in the final raid, Babylon actually was in the middle of this nighttime feast. Um, And just a couple of days before this, Cyrus the Persian had defeated Nabonidus and the Babylonian army near Sipar. So they should have seen this coming. So then that raises the question, 
Why throw this banquet? Why have this banquet? What is the purpose of this banquet in that context? Was it to rally and encourage the leaders? Was it to give them a diversion in the face of this onslaught? Or was it to feast today because tomorrow we die? Um, Honestly, it could be a little bit of all three. Um, But perhaps he even thought that he was safe and secure enough. His city was so well protected that he was taking pride in his security and feasting in ignorance. But with all this in mind, I think we are safe to assume that there was somewhat tension in the room at this point. That tension would have permeated the Babylonian capital at this time. I think that's safe to assume. But then in the middle of this feast, in an act of hubris, he calls for Israel's gold drinking vessels to be brought in. Now, these are the ones that are from chapter 1 that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and, um, and put them, I think, in the treasury. And so here he calls for these vessels. And honestly, I'm not really sure what's going through his mind at this moment, but I'm pretty sure it's not, oops, I ran out of cups. I need to get some more. Um... (laughs) I'm pretty sure this is more of a statement that he is making. He is making a particular point and has a purpose in mind. This is his claim to power. So the Jews and their sacred vessels symbolize the presence and the power of God. So Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, had obviously seen these as too precious to actually use them. He wouldn't dare do such a thing and probably didn't even think of doing such a thing. But Belshazzar, on the other hand, seeks to mock God here. Perhaps this is his challenge against Yahweh himself. He is declaring to everyone that he has a firm grip on God. He owns Yahweh. God, whose vessels he was abusing and whose name he is insulting, has now no power or reality in Babylon. Now, he even goes so far as in his drunken revelry as to praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I like the way that Tremper Longman painted this picture. It says he spits in God's eye, as it were, and then he goes over to a statue that he himself created and expects that lifeless hunk to protect him from what is to come. What a picture, isn't it? So let's keep reading. Verses 5 through 9, this unreadable message appears. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. 
Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Ferguson, in his commentary on this passage, notes that palace walls would often speak with what he calls a mute eloquence, as they would be covered with paintings and artifacts of an entire lineage of their rulers and their achievements. Such walls characteristically displayed the royal family's estimation of themselves. But, as Ferguson says here, an artist who neither possessed nor required any royal patronage depicted his estimation of the king's rule. Now, the reference to the fingers of God, as Kathy mentioned, it's one that should not surprise us. We hear this throughout the Old Testament. Exodus 8:19. the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Exodus 31, 18, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the fingers of God. In Psalm 8, 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So the fingers of God come and write on the wall, and Belshazzar is immediately thrown into quite a state So it seems clear that even though he didn't fully understand what this writing meant or understand fully the significance of it, he obviously knew this was not good. He obviously knew that this message was probably something ominous. So where does he turn in this moment of pure panic to religion, of course? Ralph Davis in his commentary says that this is sometimes God's pattern. To aggravate our helplessness by exposing the uselessness of our favorite props, even our favorite religious props. So he calls in his wise men, and none can give him the answer. But at this point in our story, it seems as if some one man has been seemingly forgotten until the queen enters. So let's read this next section, verses 10 through 16. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. 
Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretation and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck. You'll be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now, he says he can be third highest. Once again, this explains, this is part of the history here. He is the second highest, so he can't promote someone above himself. So he's offering Daniel the third highest position, which I just think the whole thing is funny considering the fact that they're going to get overthrown that very night. So you can have a purple robe and some status for the rest of the day, but... um, So Belshazzar here may have forgotten Daniel, but it's clear that the queen certainly had not. So there are some questions as to what the queen's identity is here. Um, It's pretty clear that this is not Belshazzar's wife because his wives and his concubines are actually at this feast. Um, And many seem to think that this is the queen mother. And I'm not sure, but I like that interpretation. I like it because, first of all, she has a much longer memory than Belshazzar does. She obviously really remembers Daniel and can give him a little bit of history here. But secondly, she kind of talks to him in the way that a mother would talk to a wayward child. Um, She follows the court protocol, it's hard to say, by addressing him, O king, live forever. But then she takes it upon herself to advise him in a way that seems to come from a mom. And even her tone, which some commentators call a none-too-hidden tone of disapproval, um, just reminds me of how a mom might talk to her wayward child. Now, of course, we don't know for sure who this queen is, but I just think that kind of adds a little bit more to the humor here. But then what is important is that she has not forgotten Daniel. In verse 11, she hints at the contrast between the behavior of Belshazzar and the behavior of Nebuchadnezzar, which she calls him your father. Now, in reality, he is not really related to Nebuchadnezzar, but more he is his successor, and that would often mean that they would call him your father. But the queen recognized in Daniel what she calls an excellent spirit. So what is this excellent spirit? The word ruah is used in the Old Testament in various ways. It's used for wind, for the spirit of life, and for the spirit of God. But the basic idea is that it conveys a sense of power. This is a distinctive energy or a driving force in his life that makes him stand out from all the others. This force gave him direction and quality in his life that she did not detect in others. And here she provides a lengthy list of Daniel's credentials. Daniel was in fellowship with another world. He knew God. But all of this interestingly, we learn before he's even entered the scene. And then Belshazzar also kind of gives a list of his credentials. Now he does it in a slightly condescending way. First starts off with reminding him that he was a captive. But we get this whole list of credentials and list of things that Daniel has done before Daniel even speaks in our passage, which stands in contrast with the other people in our passage. 
the other um, main characters so far have appeared on the scene kind of all of a sudden without any introduction whatsoever. Belshazzar, the hand of God, and the queen just appear into this passage. But Daniel, on the other hand, the author prepares us for his entrance. So now let's read. um, This part's kind of a long section, but I think it's helpful to read it one more time before we look at it more closely. Um, Verses 17 through 23 in this message of judgment. It says, Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted, and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. Here's what happened in chapter 4. He was driven away from people, given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in your hand, holds in his hand your life and all your ways. So I like to picture this scene here. Daniel enters the room. He's near his, or around in his 80s. And he's not even recognized This man who was once the right-hand man to the most powerful king on the face of the earth has obviously been somewhat discarded, so much so that he's not even recognized. But as he enters the room, he sees those goblets. He may not have seen those since the time he was just a young boy, and he sees what they're being used for. He remembers that when he was just a boy, they would gather with God's people. Those golden goblets that cost them so much to create were used for the worship of God. And here, they are being used in a way to mock Yahweh. And Belshazzar offers him what he had offered the others, but Daniel refuses. And I think this is a good sign that Daniel is a good and true prophet Because if you hold the power and the rewards, often you can get people to say and do exactly what you want them to say and do. But Daniel instead is going to speak the truth, no matter what he is offered. In Micah, another prophetic book, we have examples of prophets who did the opposite. Micah 3.5, the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat. So they're proclaiming peace just for what they can get out of what they say. In verse 11 of the same chapter, the prophets are telling fortunes for money. 
So that was the sign of false prophets. And Daniel here is a true and good prophet in that he is going to tell the truth no matter what the king offers him. And he addresses Belshazzar in a rather harsh way, which we're not used to of Daniel. But it has a recognizable form. This reminds us or resembles a lawsuit or covenant controversy. In such a lawsuit, people are being arraigned before God's judgment for their breach of the covenant. Here we see what one author called a machine gun-like application of Belshazzar's foolishness. He was guilty, and here his judgment is delivered. So let's look at this inscription. Daniel 5, verses 24 through 31. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain placed around his neck. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So our passage ends kind of abruptly here, but Daniel interprets the writing on the wall, which... um, It seems to consist of terms that designate weights. So we have the mina, the shekel, and a half. But Daniel interprets them um, also as a verb and via kind of wordplay. It says, God has got Belshazzar's number. He is weighed and he is found wanting, or he's a lightweight. And finally, his kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and Persians, which the last word, Perez, can also be um, understood as Persians. So, Ortberg, in his sermon on this passage, says that there are some illusions that Belshazzar is operating under in each of these judgments against him. So the first one, Mene, numbered. His illusion is that his life belongs to him. He is the king. He is free to do whatever he wants. However, God shows him that he has numbered his days. So for us, instead of thinking that it's our life, we can do what we want, we're called to think we have been given this one life by the God who made us, and we will be able to give an account for what we have done with it. The second judgment, Tekel, he has been weighed and balanced and found wanting. So the illusion he is living under here is that if he is clever, strong, or powerful enough, he might be able to get away with wrongdoing. But God knows. And the fact is, for us, oftentimes we're terribly afraid of people finding out our sin, of people knowing what it is that we've done wrong because we're embarrassed. But the fact is that God knows and sees all. And the final judgment Perez, broken or divided. He's numbered, he's weighed, and he's broken. The illusion is that his life will go on the way he wants it to go on for however long he wants it to go on. He may know that he has things he needs to fix, but he figures there's plenty of time to do it. 
But God says, this is your night. The thread is cut tonight. And so for us, we may have things that we feel like God has been calling us to do or relationships that we know we need to fix and figure we have plenty of time to do it. But if nothing else, this passage teaches us that we do not know the timeline. But the saddest part of this passage, I think, is that Daniel says, you knew. You knew. He knew what he was supposed to do, and yet he didn't do it. He was unteachable. He stands in complete contrast to Nebuchadnezzar, who was humbled and repents. Nebuchadnezzar was brought so low, literally to being an animal, But that, he says, is exactly what he needed in order to see that God is the one who is really in control. Belshazzar knew this. He had seen the example of Nebuchadnezzar, but he chose to go on the way he was living and ignore it. God had given him a front row seat to what happened with Nebuchadnezzar, but he ignored it. Call it strategic avoidance. But he closed his eyes to the truth, ignored the signs, and kept living for himself. So, I struggled a little bit with how we can apply this passage. It doesn't exactly end on a great note for Belshazzar. Um, Ends pretty bleak. So, what does this passage mean for us? How can we apply this into our lives? First of all, I think the sin of Belshazzar at the beginning of our passage is that he defiles the sacred. Now, today, we don't have some golden goblets that we're supposed to keep sacred, but we are told that we are the temple of God. Therefore, we are sacred. And so I think this has huge implications for how we treat ourselves and how we treat one another. If we view each other as sacred, it should deeply affect the way that we care for each other with kindness and with love. But secondly, Belshazzar had closed his eyes to a reality that was staring him in the face. He knew, but he ignored. He practiced strategic avoidance for the truth. So I have to wonder if sometimes we do the same. Is there any place in your life where you might be closing your eyes even though you know the right thing to do? Is there something that God has been convicting you of, but you have continued to ignore it, hoping maybe it'll just go away? Is there someone you need to forgive but still haven't forgiven? Is there a regret in your life that you need to get forgiveness from? Is there a pattern or sin in your life that you need to repent from and work on changing? I think this passage tells us that we should do that today. We don't know the timeline. And honestly, the call for humility in this passage, as well as for Nebuchadnezzar, involved doing something to help people who are in need. The advice that Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 is for him to care for the oppressed and the needy. And I do think that this is one of the ways that we can close our eyes sometimes. We close our eyes to the needy around us, and maybe there is something that God has put on your heart that you need to do in that area to care for those in need. So, I struggled finding a song this week, 
but I stumbled across this one that I had never heard before. Um, It's called Every Act of Love by Jason Gray. And I just think it's a good reminder of how, of what an effect the way we treat one another can have. It reminds us that when we show love to those around us, we are bringing God's kingdom into this world. And that is the theme of Daniel, after all, that God's kingdom is the one that lasts forever. So today, let's not put off the things that we have felt on our hearts. Let's not close our eyes, but instead open them and be acutely aware of what God is calling us to do. And let's practice forgiveness and love for one another because we are truly sacred. So let's listen to this song. It's kind of (laughs) catchy. Good luck getting that out of your head. So uh, let's, let's pray before we leave. Father God, Lord, help us to show love to those around us. God, I pray that we would bring your kingdom uh, to one another. Lord, convict our hearts in whatever way that you want us to um, love other people around us. God, convict our hearts if we need to forgive or if we need to ask for forgiveness. Lord, I just pray that you would just give us the strength to do the things that um, you call us to do. And as we are your body, help us to love one another. I pray that as we go here today, our discussions would be a wonderful blessing um, and just a life-giving time. And keep us safe and bring us back next week. In your name I pray, amen.